Welcome to the Azure Security Podcast, where we discuss topics relating to security, privacy, reliability, and compliance on the Microsoft Cloud Platform. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Episode 72. Uh, This week's a little different. Uh, The podcast has been going now for almost three years. So this week, we're just going to interview everyone. We're just going to talk between ourselves, sort of discuss you know, what we've done at Microsoft. Things have changed for all of us um, career-wise within the company. So I think it would be um, just be really useful to get an idea of what we're doing, uh, what drives us. But before we get to our little discussion, uh, let's have a little lap around the news. I'll kick things off. The first one is IPv6 support is coming to Azure AD. And that includes things like conditional access policies and all sorts of policies like that, where you can actually not just use IPv4 addresses, but you can also use um, IPv6 addresses. The other item is I wrote a blog post. Um, there's a feature which we've talked about at length on this podcast called Ledger. That's in Azure SQL DB and in SQL Server. It's all about you know, validating that transactions have not been tampered with. Well, it turns out this is actually really useful for repudiation of receipt threats. And if you're familiar with building threat models, the R in stride, which is how we think about what an attacker wants to do to a system. So for example, S is spoofing, right? So if you've got a process, you know, how do you know that's the real process and not, not a rogue, right? So that's a spoofing threat. Well, one of them is repudiation, and that's the R in stride. And so it turns out that Ledger is actually really good at mitigating repudiation threats, or at least repudiation of receipts. So I actually wrote a blog post on repudiation of of transmission, uh, repudiation of origin, and repudiation of receipt, and talk about things like um, immutable blob storage, um, and especially the sort of um, compliance requirements around that. So it's a slightly different read in as much as it's talking about an area that a lot of people don't don't really think about much. So, So yeah, take a look. Next one is we're moving full steam ahead, and I know that Mark will have an opinion on this, but we're moving full steam ahead with uh, using number matching for uh, multi-factor authentication. This is uh, going to be huge. Uh, it's a really important part of MFA, I think. So, uh, so yeah, so keep an eye out on that. And the last one is, so a colleague of mine, Buck Woody and David Seiss, have written Soup to Nuts, Zero to Hero Introduction to Security in SQL Server and in Azure SQL DB. Really well worth it, very well written, completely in-depth, covers absolutely everything. Uh, it's well worth the read. So that's what I have this week. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because uh, I actually just did a in-person event, first one in a while, um, with Buck Woody in, uh, in, ta- in the Tampa office for Microsoft, uh, Tampa, Florida. And so it was uh, just kind of funny, like uh, it was all about uh, security. So I did the overall security thing, and then there's a bunch of other sessions that Buck and some others did on uh, on uh, uh, securing your data. Um, so it's Kind of funny that you mentioned it. It's a small world, right? Uh, it's it's it is a small community. Yes, <laughs> I think the world is still physically as big as it ever was. It's just we're connected better. So um, on my news side, the big news for me is, uh, and I, I think uh, for Gladys and Sarah as well, as well as Yuri uh, uh, Diogenes, is that the exam reference for SC100, the Cybersecurity Architect, um, the, the book, the exam reference book, is out. Really excited about that. It is, um, I think as I put my LinkedIn post, the first time my name has appeared on the front of a book, which is kind of cool. So that was that was pretty exciting. And uh, we put a lot into that one around, you know, really practical, you know, no-holds-barred advice on, you know, what an architect is and does, as well as, you know, all the topics related to the exam, compliance, um, really kind of called out the, the the great things about compliance as well as the things that um, compliance is not security and here's some examples of how it doesn't do that and so really meant to make that as practical as possible for both the exam and the real world this one i don't have any, really any links or anything to announce but we're working hard on the zero trust standards at the open group so that there's a standard way of expressing zero trust security which is really just modern security without the whole it's behind the firewall, so therefore it's safe. Kind of flawed assumption. Um, so we're working on getting that standardized and released. Um, the, the first one out will be an, uh, kind of a combination of the core principles and the Zero Trust Commandments um, that are out there today. A um, little bit of new uh, elements and insights on it, but uh, mostly kind of a, a release those as an actual standard. 
Another thing that I've uh, been putting a lot of work into that just finished was the architecture design session module three, um, which is basically a security operations or SOC module for the uh, the workshops that we put out through uh, Microsoft Unified. And so this is in the normal Microsoft Utilo- uh, the Microsoft Unified catalog, rather. Um, and so if you look for security architecture workshop in there, um, you'll find that module one and module three are now available. And if you don't have access to the portal or what have you, just you know reach out to your account person or your CSAM or uh, customer service account manager, I think they're called. Um, but uh, yeah, that, that one's available and we are scheduling our first deliveries now. The other thing I've been doing a lot of research and work on for a number of different reasons is how do roles in security actually evolve and when do the specialties or specializations actually get created um, and sort of why and when and, and, you know, which one, who does the specialization of the job if um, you don't, you know, have a 20, 30, 50, 100 person team, you know, who kind of inherits that um, and does that work until there is someone dedicated to it. And so uh, including a couple links in the show notes to um, some of the work there to try and discover that and validate it. If y'all have a strong opinion there, go forth and check them out if you're interested in learning it. Um, we got one for security operations and then the sort of general technical roles as well. So that's uh, that's all I got on the new side today. Let's uh, switch gears into kind of interviewing each other type of mode. We should probably start with just introducing ourselves and kind of what we currently do. And then uh, then we can kind of get into some questions and uh, interview each other. My name is Mark Simos. I'm lead cybersecurity architect at Microsoft. Not a lot has changed from a job role for me. I mean, I've actually changed where I happen to report to within the organization, but I've been doing the lead cybersecurity architect thing for a number of years now. And so in that role, I basically build uh, guidance to help various different roles of customers, everything from CISOs and uh, business leaders and board members on occasion, and security architects and security analysts and engineers and operations folks in IT, et cetera. Take a look at the, the broad uh, swath of Microsoft's cyber capabilities and features and technology. Take a look at the the changing technical platforms. Take a look at the changing uh, business priorities and initiatives that are going on, the changing threat landscape, and build reference architectures, reference strategies, top 10 lists, um, workshops, etc., to help people kind of make sense of all of this stuff that most people don't have time to kind of keep up on themselves. So really kind of that's my job is putting out that reference stuff and then, you know, helping our folks that, uh, that help our customers train them up, get them ready to deliver those and, and take care of our customers. So my name is Gladys Rodriguez. I've been in Microsoft for um, 16 years last week, actually. Um, 14 years, I was mostly a customer-facing resource, uh, helping uh, customer implement architect solutions. And the last two years, I've been in what is called strategic missions and technologies. This is um, an organization that puts uh, many solutions or many services within Microsoft in order to provide business solutions to customers. And what I'm going to explain actually is 180 degrees uh, from what I used to do two years ago. We are using all the uh, Azure services in order to bring, for example, telecommunications uh, capabilities to customers. And some of this is using uh, satellites, uh, using ground stations. uh, And these services you may have heard it as Azure Orbital or Azure Space there's a, a work that we're doing doing with quantum. Uh, there's a lot of different things. Uh, it's a lot of learning, uh, but uh, it's really cool uh, trying to uh, secure all these uh, capabilities. And like Mark uh, mentioned, um, I just uh, had my first time, my name also in the book. So I'm really excited about that. I am Sarah Young. I am now, uh, I've had a couple of roles in Microsoft since we started this podcast, but I am now a cloud security advocate. So what that means is I am in the advocacy team. Uh, You may also know it as, um, it has other names, uh, but some organizations call it like developer relations. But of course, because I'm doing security, I don't just talk to devs. And the idea is, is that we advocate to um, and on behalf of uh, communities. Uh, So for me, of course, it's the security community. Uh, So that means that I'm trying to uh, 
talk to the community, attend events, uh, see people, meet people, give you lots of stickers, uh, but also take any feedback you have back into our engineering teams because Microsoft is a bit of a, a big beast um, and it can be really difficult to you know get feedback into the right places. So that's the kind of things that I do. Um, I also try and look for gaps in our content. I use content in the loosest sense of the word, so blogs, documents, videos, whatever it is. Uh, if if there are gaps uh, that, and we're not addressing a particular community's needs, we'll try help with that too. And on that note, you know, if anyone has any ideas, you know, feel free to tweet me um, if you uh, think uh, you see a glaring hole that we have missed. But that's that's what I do nowadays. I'm also back in Australia uh, because I have moved countries a few times uh, since we've been doing this. So uh, if anyone hasn't caught up with what country I'm currently in, that would be Australia. Uh, and Michael, uh, over to you. Yeah, thanks for that, Sarah. I'm Michael Howard. Um, I've been at Microsoft now. Actually, last June, I just hit 30 years at Microsoft. Right now, I'm actually working in the Azure data team. So I'm working on engineering for Azure SQL Database, SQL Server, Cosmos DB, PostgreSQL, and MySQL. So it's all the back-end stuff, all the back-end security stuff for, for those products. Interesting fun fact... So when we had, for those of you who remember, so last year, uh, episode 51, on April the 18th, we interviewed uh, Thomas Weiss uh, from the Cosmos DB team. Uh, while Thomas and I were actually sort of in the air quotes, in the green room, just discussing stuff before um, Mark, Gladys, and Sarah joined, um, <laughs> he actually said to me, he said, hey, how do you fancy moving over to Azure Data? And I said, yeah, sounds like a great idea. Um, and literally, so that you know, the ball started rolling then, and by the end of uh, end of um, May, I was actually um, working for Azure Data. Great team, fantastic team, great engineering people, and uh, you know, my main focus now is is just on that. So it's you know, the engineering that goes into you know, securing those those products, both the the actual running products, but also the infrastructure on you know on Azure in the back end. So yeah, it's really great to be back in. Um, engineering. Um, it's my, you know, software engineering is my first love. So, um, yeah, I'm really excited to be, you know, back in, back doing that. So with our sort of introductions out of the way, Mark, why don't you sort of continue the thought? Yeah, absolutely. I, I got that. I have a curiosity for you. It's actually, uh, let me do a quick story first. Uh, one of our, our past guests, who I won't name, was uh, when they came on the show, you know, they're a great guest and, you know, had a really good session. And then afterwards, they they made a comment to me like, you know, I was so intimidated and, and you know had imposter syndrome, you know, because you're on the podcast and whatever. I'm like, you know who Michael is, right? Because like he was the guy that I was intimidated with when I started at Microsoft. Because I've only been at Microsoft only uh, 23 years, and like Michael, Michael was like the big name in security. So, you know, dialing the time machine back to that era. I'd love to hear because you know I, I know kind of the the software development life cycle. It was kicked off by the that famous uh, Bill Gates memo that got things going. But like one of the things I've, I'm kind of curious about is sort of like the the program side of it. Like I know there's a lot of technical training. They stopped development of Windows for I don't know a couple months or something like that. And the thing I was kind of curious about is like how did they end up doing like the program side of it in terms of was do they set up a group? That did that because I remember there was this trustworthy computing group that was around for a while. I'm just kind of curious how they approached that, and you know, did each team do their own kind of security, or was there like a central like center of excellence, or was it kind of a hybrid? You know, I'd, I'd love to hear kind of more about that because I know a lot of organizations are getting an application security, and I'd love to hear kind of how we went through that. Yeah, I wish there was a really simple answer, and there and there really isn't. Um, everything you said was true, though. So in the very early days of the Microsoft SDL, the security development lifecycle, we actually didn't have an SDL to start off with. Like The team that I was in, which is run by a guy by the name of Mike Nash, um, was called the Secure Windows Initiative. Um, we also had, at the time, uh, the head of sort of security in Windows, a guy called Doug Bayer. So he was also you know, highly influential in sort of what this, this, tomb, this, this group we called SWI, the Secure Windows Initiative. We were very much focused on Windows. <clears throat> you know, we looked at bugs. I just saw bugs coming in, and then we would make recommendations, especially if we saw trends, right? You know, if we saw, say, a specific API, you know, with a, a bunch of vulnerabilities. So, for example, for those of you who know sort of low level C, 
um, there's a function called um, called stir copy, and then there's you know there's mem copy, and there's a bunch of others. We'd already like banned stir copy, but mem copy we had to we eventually banned when we had a good replacement. But it was kind of very organic back then, um, as we sort of learned learned our way, and we sort of learned you know what it, what it takes, especially something the size of Windows, right? But then it, you know then we realized this is this is bigger than Windows, you know we've got to go much bigger than that, and so a whole series of things that happened, um, you know. Uh, you know, Nimda had happened, Code Red had happened. I was actually in a meeting with Bill Gates to go over vulnerabilities, and actually Doug Bayer was was with me, um, but I was doing most of the most of the yapping. And uh, also, writing Secure Code had come out. What was interesting there. So David LeBlanc and I, who wrote writing Secure Code, the reason why we wrote it was because we realized we were getting asked the same questions time and time and time again, just basic engineering uh, questions. So we decided to sort of codify it, you know, in a book. So I actually gave a copy of the book to Bill. And the the, call, the the meeting that we had was actually on a Friday afternoon. And on Monday morning, he emailed me to say, "Hey, you know, I read the book and absolutely loved it uh, over the weekend." And so there was really a whole bunch of things that all happened at the same time. The .NET framework had also gone through a thing they called the security push. Um, sorry, security stand down. My 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 bad. It was called the security stand down. And we were looking for vulnerabilities before we finally shipped the product. And there's a lot a lot of things we learned from that too. So back back then, it was very organic. Now for the security push in Windows. There was a central team that managed it because it was so big, right? Because you know Windows is just so big, both in terms of lines of code, complexity, and engineering staff. So it was very. There was a central team, and um, you know we had, a, we had a, spe- a separate bug database for tracking bugs that were found during the security push. And you're right, Mark. It was you know it was, it was about two months long. Actually, more accurately, every group within Windows was going to be done when they were done. For some teams, that was four weeks. For some teams, it was more than two months. But you were done when you were done. And we, we define what done was, which is basically you've got, you know, essentially flatlining on incoming vulnerabilities that are being found. But the average was about, about two months, you know, plus or minus. Then we realized that, you know, we, we can't just build products and then do a security push to find the bugs. That's, you know, that's more like the wild, wild west as opposed to actually, you know, engineering. And so we decided to change things, and that became the SDL, the Microsoft SDL. And as you mentioned, I was one of the guys behind it with uh, a gentleman who was my boss at the time, Steve Lipner. He's since retired from Microsoft. He, uh, he and I, um, you know, there's a lot of other people involved, obviously. Um, we started to sort of really codify what it means around designing, developing, testing, coding constructs, crypto requirements, threat modeling, fuzz testing, static analysis, dynamic analysis, final security review, Security training, the whole nine yards, right? And that, that became the SDL. Now, you could argue there's nothing new under the sun, and that's completely true. But, um, you know, we, we documented a lot of that. In fact, Steve and I went on to write the book um, called The Microsoft Security Development Lifecycle. Um, very, very proud of that book. And at that point, we moved the SDL team out of Windows, and it became, actually, it's funny you should say TWC, Trustworthy Computing, because we ended up moving out of Windows and into Scott Charney's team which was the trustworthy computing team. So we became an enterprise, sort of a, a corporate entity as opposed to a product group entity. Uh, you know, and that has its own pros and cons, um, but most importantly, funding, right? Because if we wanted to fund an engineer, we're not funding an engineer that you know, isn't going to Windows, right? So you know, it's not a decision like, do we order a, you know, do we hire a security engineer or do we hire someone who can you know, fix, fix device drivers in the kernel? That, dis- that, you know, that conversation never happened um, because we were a corporate entity. But then there's a problem of scale, right? So there's no way that you know a hundred of us could actually manage the whole of Microsoft. And so one, one thing we ended up doing was introducing this notion of security champs, which was security experts or people who had a passion or an interest in security um, within the individual product groups. And then we would liaise with them to be the sort of the conduit of communication. And then you sort of start breeding the skills within the product groups. And then it became a point where the, the teams would actually just do their own thing. So the SDL team became like a sort of a kind of a governance body. And we would change the SDL. You know, we, we would update the SDL um, originally every six months and then finally every 12 months. Um, and we'd add new new requirements or change things from requirements to recommendations or vice versa. But we became the central sort of governance team helping all the engineering staff um, you know, achieve their goals. I don't know if that actually actually answered your question, Mark, but um, <laughs> but that's kind of the history of it. 
Yeah, that, that definitely helps. I um, yeah, it sounds like we had to learn a lot of it as we go, but like we definitely see a lot of organizations having success with that champs. You know, kind of finding the the interested and the willing among their their different kind of constituent teams. You know, that sort of almost like a hub and spoke type of approach where there's like the central authority that's, you know, has knowledge, engineers, depth, et cetera. But then, you know, the folks that are closest to the product, uh, closest to the teams, and we even do this with with our security operations or SOC, you know, using our CDOC approach, you know, keeping those experts close to the actual products and environments and then having that, you know, central thing they can rely on. So, yeah, that's, that's, uh, that, that really helped. I appreciate it, man. And Gladys, I think you had a follow-up question, right? Yes. Um, one of the things that I he- heard is that there was a lot of training put together uh, for the different developers, for uh, project managers, uh, in order to uh, learn uh, how to embed security uh, from the get-go, right? Security threats are always evolving. And now when we have uh, cloud services, it's just much more, I would say, bigger uh, what you have to know. And and this is, um, I, I guess I would say, is more uh, personal, although I think it, it will impact your answer. It will impact uh, many other people. One of the things that I mentioned when I introduced myself is I'm working on strategic missions and technology. And one of the things that I am doing is uh, helping engineers, uh, the engineers or developers, um, to embed security. When they're building solutions across um, the whole Azure infrastructure or Microsoft uh, services, overall services, in order for them to make sure that they take into account all the security capabilities that they could use, they have to know about all these different services, right? And, and, and Microsoft has hundreds of services. Uh, so it's impossible to keep up and make sure that you know about all the nitty-gritty capabilities that are being released, like uh, continuous access evaluation uh, that Identity uh, just released. And and I like that uh, a lot because it's uh, continuing authenticating uh, yourself. There's workload identities, which now applications that are authenticating to each other now uh, can use uh, with that IP. And if the request is not coming from a particular IP, it would uh, spit it out. So my question is this, how would you see any organization uh, keeping up in training and enabling uh, their developers to embed uh, zero trust capabilities or security and principles in in the development. What are your thoughts around that area? Yeah, it's funny you should bring that up. Um, I've been doing a lot of threat models just recently um, for as a SQL DB, SQL MI, and um, and Cosmos DB. And it's interesting because the threat model sort of process, even though under the you know sort of the, the moving parts are different, the, the questions are still the same. Like the technology may be different. So you know, here's an example, right? So back in the old days, we'd see like an end user, you know, say it's in Windows, right? And we'd say, okay, how do you authenticate? You know, it's a threat modeling question, right? So how do you authenticate that user? Well, back then people would have said, you know, user username and password. Okay, but, but what are you actually using? Like, is it NTLM? Is it Kerberos? Is it basic? Is it digest? You know, what is it? We still ask exactly the same question today, the, the exact same question. But the big difference is, it's like, is it AAD? And by the way, the correct answer is yes, it's AAD, right? Because that way I can apply things like conditional access and that sort of stuff to it. So it's interesting, the questions are kind of the same that they were 20-something years ago, but some of the mechanics are different. But knowing those mechanics is really, really important, right? So when I'm looking at a threat model for you know some sort of um, Azure backend service, basically the correct answer for server authentication is, is TLS. Today, it's always, you know, it absolutely is TLS. Um, back in the old Windows sort of AD environments, it would have been Kerberos and, and potentially TLS because that gives you server authentication. And then for channel protections, it's still the same, right? It's TLS. And then for client authentication, that's certainly changed um, from you know, NTLM, Kerberos, or whatever to, to AAD. But again, the questions are still the same. Now, to, but to answer your question about how do you keep people on board and up to date with what's going on, this is something that, that this is something that the organization has to has to embrace. The the threats are constantly evolving. They're just you know always evolving. So, for example, 
you know, one thing that's raised its ugly head a lot more over the last few years with uh, with cloud environments has been um, what's called server side request forgery vulnerabilities. And so, you know, there's a lot of tooling going on and education going on, and you know, sample code and this, that, and the other. And you know, we're making sure that we can make sure the engineering staff are, you know, well aware of um, server side request forgery vulnerabilities. And there's lots of others as well. Don't get me wrong. That's just just one example. So yeah, that, yeah I think it's incredibly important that you know organizations do make it a point of training their engineering engineering staff. What about um, your thoughts regarding developers also taking into account any verifications that they can do within the code instead of um, relying just in Azure AD or uh, endpoint protection or all the other security, but the application itself uh, doing the verifications? Yeah, actually, so it depends on your definition definition of verification, right? So one of the big ones that developers have control over is the data that's coming into the system, right? So if you've got some some data coming in through a REST endpoint or something, it's like, you know, you can't trust that data. You've got to be able to, you've got to validate it. So how do you validate it? And the funny thing is, there's a comment that David and I wrote in Writing Secure Code, you know, 20-something years ago, which is, you know, all input is evil. When... Simone Heinrich and I wrote designing and developing secure Azure solutions, and I wrote. Is that like the predecessor to zero trust? <laughs> well, no, I mean, zero trust is obviously much bigger than just than just. Yeah, that, but, but but it's the exact same concept of you know essentially assume evil unless otherwise proven. Yeah, and that's the mistake we're seeing. We're still seeing it today. And and again, just getting back to the book, you know, this new book. I wrote the uh, secure coding chapter, and within the first paragraph, I've said I actually say. Hey, all input is evil until proven otherwise. It's the same that it was 20 years ago. It doesn't matter if you're programming in Go, Rust, or whatever today versus C, C++, and you know, heaven forbid, VB. You know, back in the day, that issue still exists today. So that there are some sorts of skills that sort of transcend, you know, the the fact that the, the sort of the programming fashions of the day. You know, and, and I, I still believe strongly that we should be teaching developers just that one skill, if, if nothing else. You know, do not trust any input into your system, you know, because that's where problems are going to, you know, sort of manifest themselves. Now, with that said, that's a coding thing. It's not a design thing, right? You would not catch that as part of a threat model. But I think from your perspective, Gladys, about, you know, validating stuff, I think doing things like authorization checks and authentication checks. You know, you, the threat model should show you the whole end-to-end, like where you're doing the authentication and where you're doing the authorization, and more importantly, you know how it's being done. Um, but that should be in the threat model. Thank you. All right, so I've got a question for for Sarah. All right, so you've moved, you know, to the Antipodes, um, to to Australia, and I know you, you know, you and I have spoken about some of the differences between the countries, but uh, the US predominantly and and, and Australia. But from your perspective, do you find that the people you deal with and and customers have issues that are unique to their geography, or is there an approach to the way they, you know, handle cybersecurity? Is it, you know, what are the the differences between the two uh, countries? Yeah, it's a super interesting question, and I'd say um, probably. This side of the world is, and shout out to the Antipodes, hello, um, Australia. Well, we cheesy say good day, Australia and Kyoto, New Zealand. I think something, and, and research does back this up, uh, and I think we're getting better. But in Australia and New Zealand, for those of you who have not traveled to this lovely part of the world, and you should do at some point, uh, people are very trusting, definitely more trusting than um, other parts of the world. Um, so for example, I know in New Zealand, like research shows that if you do like a fishing exercise, generally, you know, maybe you'll get like a 10, 15% click-through rate on say your typical everyday workforce. Whereas in New Zealand, it's more like 25, 30%. And that's because people are very trusting and they're not so used to, to scams. Cause I think people who are doing scamming and trying to breach things haven't traditionally always gone for Australia and New Zealand just because they're a bigger fish to fry like the US and and Europe. But as time goes on and the awareness increases in in the US and in Europe, I think uh, you definitely are getting people uh, 
targeting probably more Australia because there's more people here. Uh, For those of you who don't know, I think the population of Australia is about 25 million. New Zealand is only 5 million. New Zealand's a very small country. I've been surprised uh, the difference between when I was living in Australia uh, before COVID and now that I'm getting a lot more scam text messages and emails uh, than I remember here before. Um, it's more comparable with the US. So I do think that I wouldn't say there's anything unique, but I think down this part of the world, people perhaps to a point have been less exposed to it, but that's changing quite quickly. Uh, And so, uh, um, and for those of you who are in Australia, you'll know there's been a couple of quite high profile breaches recently with some, some big companies. So I think it's definitely top of mind. And Australia has been making some really interesting inroads um, into you know, making cybersecurity a priority. I mean, all countries are doing that right. But I think, you know, given, let's say, the last six months, it, it's something that's very much top of mind. So I would say uh, this part of the world is definitely catching up qu- um, very quickly with the awareness and the knowledge. It's it's not that it wasn't there at all. I don't want anyone to take away from what I'm saying here. It's just that probably the general public consciousness perhaps wasn't as high, but we're definitely getting there now because we have to, because as we know, even if we're just talking about scams uh, and people scamming people out of money, it still does damage to people, right? Even if it's individuals. So, you know, that awareness piece is definitely going up. Michael, you've been down here. You spent a little bit of time down here. What's your take? Yeah, actually, one thing that I've found is that Australia and New Zealand are usually very, very quick to pick up new technologies and new ideas as well. There seems to be a little less resistance to coming up with, you know, with reasons why not to deploy something new. For example, back in the day when I was working in the IIS team, the first company to reach out to me uh, to try to help them with some cross-site scripting vulnerabilities was actually an Australian bank. They understood very quickly the ramifications of cross-site scripting for their online presence. They were using they were using IIS at the time, so you know, I helped them out with sort of you know get rid of a few that they had because honestly it wasn't really a problem that was really known about and it was a bit of a mystery to a lot of people um, but the fact that you know the very the very first people to come to me recognizing hey this is bad was was actually an Australian bank so yeah um, that's my observation actually just so, just so you know so my my very earliest days at Microsoft in New Zealand I actually did support for Windows 3.x and then Windows NT but also the C compiler so I did. I made a lot of support for C and C and I was always amazed at the level of expertise of the New Zealand software developers who were using C and C They were really pushing the compiler, and I did not expect that. And I think that whole, you know, sort of can-do attitude, which I know has been thrown around a lot in New Zealand, um, is is very real. I'm going to switch gears here for a moment, and. You know, I'm I'm always trying to become a better ally and advocate for for women in technology and and other you know underrepresented uh, minorities. And Sarah and Gladys, I'd I'd love to to get your perspective on. I know in my early days of that journey that it was very intimidating and very scary to try and do the right thing because I didn't know what to do or what not to do. And so I'd love to get your perspective on, you know, what are the things that you would recommend for men that, you know, want to be an ally and an advocate and and help their female colleagues, you know, what to do, what not to do to sort of help in that space? Um, oh, I have so many thoughts on this, but my take on this is that we've still got a long way to go. But in fact, the majority of people aren't uh don't discriminate against minorities. But uh, I think because it has become socially unacceptable to be overtly racist, sexist, ist of any any kind, what we see now is it's pushed under the table a little bit. So unless you're the recipient of that, you you wouldn't necessarily notice it was a thing. And so uh, the thing that I've taken away from having many conversations with different men, uh, and I'm talking about this, um, and I'll just caveat, I'm talking about this in the sense of being a woman in tech, uh, only because that's the experience I can speak to. I do realize that um, uh, being a minority in tech actually takes many forms, uh, whether it's ethnicity, religion, gender, etc. So uh, like I said, I, I'm just talking to my experience, but I think this does apply to to uh, other th- others as well, um, is that it's often that we need to just talk about it. In fact, I'm doing uh, a... Um, 
webinar tomorrow uh, with a, f- a colleague of mine called Jess Dodson, who's been on the show, uh, about uh, women's stories from the tech trenches. And we talk about recent examples of where women have been discriminated against or they've been talked down to. But it's not as avert as someone just standing there and saying, hey, Sarah, you don't know anything because you're a woman. It, it's it's much more subtle nowadays. Um, and unless you're really looking out for it, you wouldn't realize. And I, I'm really surprised. And, and I think we need to talk about this more because something that's always surprised me is when I tell most ordinary people that I work with, hey, yeah, this, this still happens. Here's an example that's happened to me, uh, you know, just in the last week or two or, or whatever it is, they're like, no, that doesn't happen anymore. And, and it's not that they are consciously ignoring it. It's because it's a little bit more subtle. It's under the table that, that a lot of folks don't realize that this still does happen. And, and so I think that awareness piece, uh, is really important. So I'd encourage you, um, uh, if they want to talk about it, I mean, don't shove it down their throat. You know, listen to the stories. Um, I can guarantee you that there will be um, things that have happened in your workplace or in your community where um, there has uh, someone has said something that's not appropriate, but you know, you might not have realized it um, because, yeah. But, it happens. Uh, but if you're not at the receiving end of it, it can sometimes be very difficult to notice. So I think uh, being very aware is a thing. Uh, the other one, and I could go on for a long time, but I won't. My other pet peeve is that when we're talking about diversity, uh, and this has happened to me, you'll be like, oh, minorities in the team. Can you go do the diversity event, please? Or go and work on a diversity initiative? When in fact, everyone in the team should be working on the diversity initiative. Uh, you know, don't just make it the women or, or again, whatever other minority. It's not just their initiative. We should all be doing it as good allies. They're, they're probably my two two main bits. But and, and just to as a final thought on this, because as I said, I could do a whole podcast on this, is don't be naive in thinking that it doesn't still happen because it definitely does. We're getting better. There's a lot of initiatives, a lot of great people out there working on it. But if you're sitting there thinking, oh, yeah, that's not a problem in my workplace, I would definitely reassess, look again uh, with, with maybe a bit of a closer lens. Yeah, uh, Gladys, how about you? I have to agree that um, uh, most people do not realize uh, when things like that happen unless it's really happening to them, right? Uh, and and I, I have to say um, there's companies that do not really care about diversity and inclusion. Uh, Microsoft is uh, heavily into my, uh, diversity and inclusion, so I think... Um, Whatever happens in Microsoft happens less than uh, many other organizations. Um, but it's, it's something definitely um, important. Uh, look, I, I think it, even this podcast, right? Uh, I, I think Michael, uh, he was the original one that was put on us together. He wanted somebody uh, with diversity and try to think about okay, how can I bring that diversity in here? I, I'm hoping, uh, uh, I never have asked, uh, but I, I, I think uh, that's the truth. I, uh, we are from a different time zone, uh, different experience, different ages. Uh, so, so I think uh, that's the number one thing that we need to do in order to make sure that um, we advocate not only for women, but a, a diverse uh, background. The other thing that I... Um, I think it's uh, uh, really important. Um, I have this, um, it's a a slide that I extracted from a Microsoft uh, presentation that it was talking about behaviors. And um, I I always, uh, it's it's 10 behaviors about for diversity inclusion, but I always love like the first five or six uh, uh, that it mentions uh, because I think that helps to make sure that that you include everyone or or advocate uh, for those people uh, for everyone right the first one is says uh, examine your uh, assumptions right uh, when you're listening to people uh, sometimes uh, we have assumptions and and we take decisions based on those assumptions uh, the second one make a habit of asking questions uh, 
third one, ensure all voices are heard. That's uh, really important because many times, Mark, like uh, you mentioned, everyone else uh, also feels the same way. We, we don't know what uh, what to do, when to do it. Uh, there's something odd, but uh, uh, we're not sure if we should be raising our voice. Uh, so there's uh, people that stay quiet. Uh, they're more timid. And so ensure that all voices are heard. And there's a lot of women uh, that uh, stay quiet. For example, when I first joined Microsoft, I was in a room of 30 people and I was the only woman. You know how intimidated that was it? Actually, I remember I was being in a, in a meeting that I was presenting um, in this company and there were about 20 guys in, in technology. And um, one of the guys uh, said to me, Gladys, it doesn't matter uh, what ideas you bring. We're not going to do any of them. Imagine something like that, right? Um, so I have had experience in, in all area. And by the way, there were a lot of managers, a lot of people in there, and nobody did anything. Nobody say anything, and I stay quiet. It's something that I, I always think about. Uh, the other one that it says, listening carefully uh, to the person is speaking until she or he feels understood, right? Because sometimes me, I, I speak Spanglish, so probably I, <laughs> some people that speak Spanglish, they understand me, but not everyone understands me, right? I may use uh, uh, some wording that are, is not uh, really um, uh, used in, in Australia, in New Zealand, etc. Address misunderstanding and resolve disagreement. Those are the five top behaviors uh, that Microsoft has in this uh, slide that I think is uh, really important. And um, uh, the la last one is make sure you involve different, uh, different perspectives. Uh, for the most part, uh, the other day I was in a project and I was like, oh, you know, I have this friend and this other friend that could help out. But then I was like, okay, but we have similar perspectives, similar experience, similar. We were in the same team. We did, we did uh, similar projects. Uh, so we're not bringing that diversity in. So just make sure that you include the woman uh, as part of the teams, as part of the group, as part, as part of the communication, meetings, et cetera. Yeah, so in the interest of full disclosure, so when Mark and I were first talking about the podcast, which was about now, three years ago, we met in a pub in, um, in downtown Seattle to talk about it. And uh, the de decision was made like from almost from day one to basically have as diverse a lineup as possible. Um, and I think the podcast is much better because of it. So, so yeah, in case anyone doesn't realize, like there was always you know a decision very early on to be as sort of you know, varied as possible. And, and again, I think the podcast is much better because of it. 100% agree. Yeah. Yeah. And the other, the other part of that, and, and sort of more on the I side of DNI, is um, so I gave a presentation this weekend. It's a thing called SQL Saturday um, in the Austin, uh, Microsoft office in Austin. I discovered there's a new feature in PowerPoint that actually does live subtitles as you're speaking. It will even translate. So if you're doing, say, for example, to a Spanish audience, it would actually translate as well uh, while you're speaking English. But what's interesting is, so my slides were coming up and there was my, you know, almost perhaps a half a second delay, maybe a second delay um, tran transcription of my, my, my audio. And it was interesting because at the end, these two people came up and actually said to me, they said, hey, first of all, what, what the heck just happened? How did you manage to do that? And I showed them, I said, hey, it's this new feature in PowerPoint. Then they said they actually really appreciated it because both of them were hard of hearing. And it made everything so much easier for them. You know, and the amount of effort required from my point, you know, from my standpoint, was exactly zero. I clicked on a button, and that's basically it. So yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan of that kind of stuff. The other thing that I wanted to mention is uh, just mentor women out there. Uh, we, we would like to uh, be part of it, include us, uh, be part of the in the hiring process. Uh, bring us in. I think it's becoming better in the in recent years, right? And last, connecting communities. Uh, uh, most of the time when I go to a, a community event, uh, there's all these guys together, right? So I'm going in there. I'm the only woman. In. So, um, but there's time that there, I, I see a woman walking around and they don't know who to connect. So just uh, be conscious of that. So. 
Yes, thank you very, very much for those perspectives. That that was awesome. Thank you. So, Mark, you have mentioned that you have worked on many uh, different resources uh, like CISO Workshop, the NCRA, Microsoft uh, Well Architected Framework, and many others. For somebody that is uh, starting brand new, uh, what is a learning roadmap that you would recommend? That's a really good question. And, you know, that code for there's no simple answer. So I'll start it with a standard consulting answer of it depends. And then, you know, offers, the, you know, kind of the, the way I think about that. So because it really does depend on what your background and experience are. You know, do you have a technical background or not? Are you just, you know, straight into cyber? Have you been in technology for a while? You know, early in career or later in career, you know, kind of depth of, of technical experience and breadth, et cetera. Part of it is your background experience, but part of it is also what you're looking for and what you're trying to get. The interesting thing about cybersecurity is such a broad field. We work on some of the deepest technology things like reverse engineering and the like. But we also work with user education and touching hearts and minds and, and you know, trying to convince people to do things, whether it's a developer to follow you know, secure coding practices you know, through a CHAMPS program or you know, educating users so they understand what the right uh, answer is or looking for insider threats, which again is very human uh, in, in nature. And not a, a te- it's technical, but it's you know there's a lot of you know what is the person's motivation, disgruntled, etc. So there's so so many different areas of cybersecurity. It really kind of depends on you know what you're interested in. So like you know we, we did put together if you're hey you're a technical person and you're new to cyber, we created these things called interactive guides. And we use the MCRA, the Microsoft Cyber Reference Architecture, as sort of the slide backdrop for these videos. But we completely changed the talk track um, from the normal one to, hey, let me explain what the heck this part of security is or that part of security is. And so that's that's sort of one of the things that we put together for folks that are like just have a basic technical background, but you know need to learn more about security. If you're more experienced in cyber and you're just trying to understand the Microsoft technologies or the newest and latest techniques, the, the cyber reference videos, the Microsoft cybersecurity reference architecture videos, um, those are probably the right place to start. If you have a specific thing like, hey, we just bought Sentinel or we just bought Defender for IoT or you know some other specific product technology, I really, really like the Ninja training videos because they're kind of like going to a workshop focused on, you know, okay, I now need to know everything about that particular product. And so, you know, those are kind of the, the first ones that pop into mind, depending kind of on your uh, needs and, and backgrounds. So I wanted to kind of close us on a couple of questions. And the questions are, what are your favorite things to talk about in security and why? So that's the first one. And then the second one is any career advice that you would offer for folks that are looking to advance their careers in cybersecurity. My personal favorite thing to talk about in cybersecurity is how connected it is to everything else. So security isn't just a technical discipline. It's, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's a human discipline. It's got elements of economics and human behavior um, and psychology, um, not just of our own users, but also of the attackers and how do they make the most money and what's their return on investment for an attack. And so the thing that I love to, to, to talk about and to explore about cybersecurity is how much of the, the greater body of human knowledge that we can bring to our industry and you know you know things like group dynamics and economics and finance and and you know just anything about like just what we've learned as humans as a species and so that's that's my favorite thing to connect to it and the the big career advice i would give folks is to really kind of explore the full breadth of cybersecurity and understand it because there's a lot of opportunities out there and a lot of them aren't the normal you know sort of well paved paths of hey i have to learn and master network technology in order to be a good cybersecurity person yes you definitely want background information you need sort of a breadth of understanding of technology and others but ultimately there's there's so many things that we're doing in cybersecurity but there's also so many things that we're not doing and so there's a lot of opportunities to sort of forge new paths and so really you know bringing your creativity and bringing your ideas to it 
um, and bringing your you know diverse backgrounds to it. I mean, that's what's going to make cybersecurity a better discipline. It's not doing the same stuff we've been doing for the past 10 years, although there is some consistency, as Mike pointed out. But it's also about what can we bring to it to address the things that haven't been done is, you know, maybe there's a psychological dynamic that explains why we keep doing things. And if we have the right, you know, motivation for it or the right perspective on it or the right visual that that clarifies a particular topic, all of a sudden, instead of 10 people out of 100 in a room that would understand it, maybe 70 people in a room of 100 would understand that topic. So there's just so many opportunities in cybersecurity to bring you know, yourself and your background, your unique skills. So that's, that's the big thing is bring your whole self to cyber. For me, I would say that uh, my favorite thing to talk about security will be the graph, APIs, interconnections. Uh, it, it mainly is the ability of interconnecting services together. And the reason for this is that many of the Microsoft tools or security services take into account the interconnectivity of different services. And, and this is not just Microsoft services, but uh, it could be uh, third-party services. And, and it enables it a lot uh, through the graph and, and through uh, many of the other APIs. And these, in turn, allows for automation, orchestration to be done inherited in the uh, tools, in the services of, which is in turn uh, speed up uh, resolution, uh, I guess, uh, protect, detect, and response, uh, all, all these through these services. So I, I love talking about that and how Microsoft enables these uh, because uh, once I start talking about that and then I show it uh, like in the XDR uh, tool or Microsoft 365 tool, the light bulb uh, lights up and you see their eyes uh, open up and I say, oh, hold on a second. Uh, we are in a different world. It's no longer about collecting uh, logs in a seam. It's no longer about uh, having somebody manually write uh, automation or orchestration. So I like when people just realize something, it differentiates the regular work that they're doing. Career advice, I would say that the number one thing that has helped me at, at Microsoft and in many places is uh, networking, networking with people, ha- getting mentorships. I, I, I actually today, uh, I was asking somebody to mentor me, right? Uh, that, that is a never-ending type of thing. Learning from others, uh, meeting uh, new people, have, doing community. I think this is uh, the most important thing uh, because when I don't know something, I know who knows uh, that things, right? Uh, so I'm able to accomplish a lot of things. Uh, and, and it is uh, funny to say this, but when I first uh, came into uh, uh, a strategic mission and technologies, everyone was saying that Gladys was uh, Yellow Pages uh, uh, for the team. If they had a question, who can answer this? I I had the answer. I had uh, somebody uh, for them to find the answer from. So um, I heavily recommend keep up with networking and uh, mentoring. The last thing that I I has started uh, doing, like in the last three years or so, is um, every day I take like an hour just to learn something, uh, read something. Watch a video, something like that. Especially in security, if you don't, uh, if you're not able to do something like that, it just uh, you just stay behind. I don't say with this that I know everything, right? Uh, but at least I'm able to keep up a little bit and show that I am up to date of what is happening out there. Yeah, I actually want to um, concur with the whole learning thing. So I actually keep. When I sort of come across topics that I'm interested in that I, that I want to learn more about, I actually have a uh, a Microsoft to do list, and I just add it to the list. That way, I don't, that way I don't forget because I know full well that if I don't write it down, I'll forget. And then what I do is every day um, is I'll pick something from the list and I'll I'll look at it, and I actually have it set aside like you. I have some time set aside in my calendar to learn something. It literally is called learn something. And I'll go to go to to do pick something and just. Just you know, as you say, you know, read a read a document or read a research paper or watch a video or something. Yeah, that's that's how I stay on top of things. So, to getting getting back to the original question that Mark uh, Mark raised, so the thing that I like to talk about the most. I mean, obviously, anyone who knows me knows that I, you know I'm a big fan of software development. 
Um, a big fan of cryptography and cryptographic controls in general. But to sort of take it one level higher than that, um, I'm a big fan of telling stories. I think that the area of security can be uh, very complex and quite intimidating. But sometimes if uh, you, know, you can bring it back to sort of a simple, a simple human story, then it starts to make sense. Like I've, heard, I've had people say, well, we can't do that because blah, blah, blah. I'm like, well, let me tell you how another customer did that and how they realized it wasn't the best idea. Uh, you know, obviously without naming names. And and if I can if I can jump in there for a second, because storytelling is I changed my professional my personal version of my professional identity about 10, 12 years ago. That I'm no longer a technologist. I'm a storyteller that tells technical and security stories. Yeah. And the world got so much clearer for me. Yeah, like hundred percent. Hundred percent agree. Yep. Yeah. In fact, when I moved from Redmond to Austin, uh, I got like three emails from people saying, I'm really going to miss story time with Michael. Um, (laughs) I think you have to be able to tell things as stories because I think that can be a lot more compelling to a lot of people. And then second one about career advice, I I think learning is is big. I think learning is absolutely huge. In fact, when I hit the 30 years, I was kind of interviewed by, by the head of our group. Uh, in front of you know everybody, and one of the questions was like, you know, how do you stay stay fresh, you know, after thirty years? And the big thing is just learning. You've just got to keep learning, and you've got to be willing to reinvent yourself as well if needed. Like I'll give you an example oh, by way of a story. When David and I wrote Running Secure Code, uh, even though David was in Office and I was in Windows, we were still writing stuff about Windows code. So we were known as like you know the security, so the Windows security guys, right? And then this thing came along, which. Uh, about 10 years ago, which I thought, you know, this is going to be a big deal, this cloud thing. You know, I ended up spending a lot more time learning about cloud threats, cloud mitigations, cloud risks, and so on. And then, you know, lo and behold, another book comes out called Designing and Developing Secure Azure Solutions. So essentially, over the years, I sort of reinvented myself as essentially an Azure security guy, right? Now, what's ultimately and beautifully ironic, however, is because I'm working on the back end of Azure now, I'm working inside of, you know, many cases, you know, say an Azure SQL DB or a Cosmos DB instance or other things, you know, hosted in VMs. So I'm still working, you know, at the operating system level, even though I'm talking about cloud thre- cloud threats and so on. A lot of the work that I do on a day to day basis is actually still Windows, essentially at the back end. But yeah, you've got to be willing to um, essentially not I'm going to say throw things away, but you you know you may have to reboot your career at some point. And, I th- and you have to be willing to take those risks, I, I think. So my favorite thing to talk about in security is actually just just talking to everyday people and making them realize that security is relevant to them and their everyday life. I'll give you an example. A couple of weeks ago, I was getting a blowout at a salon and... Uh, I was talking to the the lady who was doing my hair and she was a law student. Uh, she did the blowouts in her spare time. And we ended up talking about security and she said her friend's boyfriend was studying it. And anyway, we just ended up for the whole time me getting my hair done, talking about security and, and all the different parts to it and how it's relevant to absolutely everybody. Um, even if you're not a security professional and, and you're getting paid to look at it, you know, we all have to take security precautions in our lives and, and the effects of what happens in security affects everybody. And even if you're, you know, very anti, I don't think anti-establishment or, or just anti-society. And even if you, you don't, you know, you don't even use a bank or anything and you try and go off grid. The fact is, is that someone somewhere has some information on you on a computer in an electronic format, no matter how much you try. And for those of us who don't choose that lifestyle, there's a lot of information about us on computers. So so security really is everybody's problem. And I really enjoy, I, I love talking to secu- um, security professionals and people in the IT industry, but I think just through the course of me chatting with people, making people understand just how much security affects absolutely everybody, I find a really fun thing to do. Um, And obviously people's reactions are like, wow, oh, wow. Like I didn't realize that was, that was going to affect me too. So yeah, that's, that's probably one of my favorite things. My career advice is not too dissimilar from what some of my other 
lovely uh, colleagues have said here, but, you know, you do have to keep learning. Uh, I mean, this is the same for all IT technology careers because technology goes out of date very quickly, you know, and, and security and the attackers and the techniques and what they do also changes really quickly. So, of course, that's that's a really important one. But also stick with it because uh, I have had many times, you know, many times in my career um, where, you know, it's hard work what we do. It can be hard work not just from a technical perspective, but also emotionally. We we don't have easy jobs. And uh, I was always taught by my dad. He was, you know, he always said, well, Sarah, you know, that, you know, you didn't sign up to do an easy job. Um, what, what you do as a job is actually really difficult, but that's why you get to do some really interesting work. You get to travel and you get to do all these other cool things al- alongside that. So I think as well, making sure work is not the only thing in your life. I mean, with working from home and, and all of those boundaries, we don't, (laughs) it can be, that's dissolved the work-life boundary, I think even more, at least for some of us. I know I certainly did more work during the pandemic, but make sure you've got other things going on outside as well, uh, because it's, it's tough and it's a hard job. It's interesting and rewarding, but it's not easy. But you need to balance that with things going on outside. All right. So with that, we've been going for nearly an hour. Uh, let's wrap this thing up. This has been actually a lot of fun. It's, it's you know a little bit different. Uh, you know, it makes, certainly makes a change from interviewing somebody from a, a product team um, about the security implications of their products or some security features. So thanks everyone for for taking the time. And to all our listeners out there, we hope you found it useful. Again, you know, a little bit different. But stay safe, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to the Azure Security Podcast. You can find show notes and other resources at our website, azsecuritypodcast.net. If you have any questions, please find us on Twitter at Azure SecPod. Background music is from ccmixter.com and licensed under the Creative Commons license.